and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates. For January 2012, I am writer-critic-US-Republican-hopeful Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hello there, I'm writer-director-unworthy Academy Award nominee Paul Anthony Nelson, and with us this month is... Uh, hello, I am critic-dilettante... Hyphen lover, hyphen dreamer, hyphen me, Richard Gray from therealbits.com. Amazing. Nice. <laughs> Completing our collection of Richard Grays. Yes. <laughs> the second we've had on the podcast. I know. I'm a bit disappointed on the second Richard Gray to be on. That's fine. I haven't made a film yet. So okay, it's all right. yeah, it's okay. We'll find a third one and make it yeah. feel better. <laughs> Complete the trilogy. Better. Yeah. <laughs> I'm well, the Empire Strikes Back of Richard Grays. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. There you go. <laughs> Well, January, in terms of Australian release dates, is usually a little bit of a... We get a lot of a holdovers. Uh, all the films we really should have got in December that the US got. Uh, we- so. Weirdly, the complete opposite to America, where January is a, ju- a dumping ground. Yeah. And here it's usually the best stuff, because it's all the Oscar stuff we should have gotten last month. Strange. This is the month where even a 3D kids film set in a train station is directed by Martin Scorsese. That's how good our January is. <laughs> what did you guys think of Hugo? Yeah, I really love this film. Uh, it's it, it didn't make me cry. Like, it seemed to have made everybody else cry. Mm. But I love how perverse it is and what a giant Trojan horse it is because it starts off as this kind of Harry Potter-esque or this sort of, you know, this sort of kind of... But with Scorsese's visual gymnastics and using 3D wonderfully... Mm. Um, it's. I think it's the film that finally convinced me that okay, given the time and the place, 3D has a real use. Yeah. So it starts off as this kind of Harry Potter-esque family film, and then becomes something it, you're not quite sure about. And I remember actively wondering halfway through the film, once we start introducing certain characters, and there was a time I was actively wondering who is this movie for. Mm. And then once the final act kicks in, it becomes incredibly clear who it's for. On one level, it's for cinephiles over the age of 20. (laughs) And on the other hand, this is where the Trojan Horse Stealth Bomber stuff comes in, is that Scorsese uses all of the 21st century filmmaking tools du jour uh, of 3D, of digital shooting, to essentially educate kids on silent film and on film preservation and why we shouldn't forget the past. And to have one of the world's leading film preservation advocates basically preach from a pulpit is kind of a gospel I can get behind. That's a lot of how I felt about it as, as well, the uh, the idea of celebrating the past whilst using such futuristic tools was just uh, was so subversive. I loved it. What do you think, Richard? Yeah, well, look, like Paul, there was nothing about the campaign for this film that attracted me in the slightest, except for the fact that Martin Scorsese was attached to it. Mm. And the trailer looks like this really ridiculous kids' film that sort of emphasises Sasha Baron Cohen's character. And that worried me, particularly in the first 20 minutes of the film. And I'm watching this thing thinking, okay, where's this brilliant film people have been talking about? And then it drops. And suddenly it, the reason why people love it becomes obvious. But I think it's more than that. I think it's just so beautiful. I mean, it's such a beautifully shot film. It's such a lovingly made film. And it's clearly made by someone who, who knows his way around a camera. Yeah. You know, who's, who's made one or two films before that we may be familiar with. <laughs> um, but given that, you know, we've seen serious so-called serious film I just did the quote-unquote thing you can't see that I've just forgotten <laughs> um, serious filmmakers make try to make kids films before or try to make you know family friendly fare before 
And it's kind of being pitched like that, but it's really not. It's really not a family-friendly film, I think. It's, it's a, it is a film that you can enjoy as a family, I think. I feel his most personal film in a very long time yeah. as well. Um, the last three, Aviator, Shutter Island and Departed, feel like extremely well-executed confections, whereas this feels like it's coming from somewhere in Marty's heart, and that's amazing for him at 65 mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. 70 or however old he is to probably should have researched that um to still care so much i'm surprised you don't know uh, you don't know i know today. right <coughs> should we make up an, an age now I'm and just decide on it? i'm slipping badly someone uh, else who has an age i don't know what it is but uh alexander payne who made the descendants god i'm really enjoying these segues <laughs> uh, the descendants alexander payne's latest for after he did um what was his last one? Sideways, Sideways yeah. which was a hell of a long time ago. Was that his last film? It was. I know, it's hard to believe, right? It's He's so. gone off and done a bit of television. He's done a few other things since, but his last feature was Sideways. Wow. Descendants is one of those ones where the people who love it, I keep wanting to argue with when they tell me they love it. The people who hate it, I keep wanting to argue with. I think I'm right in the middle of this. I'm right on the fence with it. I'm like, I like it. I appreciate parts of it, but there's so much that, narration can be great i think there are examples mm. of great narration in history i think the reason there are few so few examples of great narration is that it's something very hard to get right uh and it's used as the most awkward ham-fisted crutch in this and it goes for about 15 minutes 10 15 minutes and then never used again which is quite amateurish for i think a filmmaker who's usually so on point Look, I agree with you. The narration kind of sort of puts you off from the start, and it is, as you say, a really incredibly difficult thing to do, and maybe Clooney's not the person to pull it off, and it could be the writing as well. It did feel clumsy, but for me, because I think the rest of the film works so well for me, mm. um, it is one of those movies that uh, kind of washes over you, um, which is sort of appropriate given its island setting, and it is, I think the people who hate it um, don't like the pacing. They don't. They find it too slow, or they find it a little too... Um, consciously uh, indie, I guess, to use I th- a. I think they object to the characters. I've heard a lot of complaints about the characters, yeah. and, and and the thing, actually, the the thing that I found about the characters when I when I started watching the film, I really did hate the characters. I particularly mm. uh, disliked um, Shailene Woodley's character and the character of Sid. They're both particularly obnoxious at the start of it, and there's a point where they both um, turn into these really heartfelt characters really real human beings and I think that's really difficult to achieve mm. in a film particularly in, in the abbreviated you know uh, format of cinema this is based on a book of course um, uh, and I to me I the more I reflect on the film it, it becomes uh, something a bit more special and uh, I actually think it's one of Clooney's best performances to date as well mm. because he's not as centre stage um, as he is another film, it is a it is a character piece. It is an ensemble piece. I think I think the obnoxious character thing is quite deliberate, and I think the clue to that is um, that Matthew Lillard is in the film, <laughs> and you don't cast Matthew Lillard in the film unless you want to challenge your audience's expectations of liking <laughs> characters. Another indie film with this is a good segue, but you've ruined it now by pointing it out. Go on. All right. <coughs> this is <coughs> load up. Go on. Another indie film with characters that a lot of people have objected to because they're unlikable. But now I feel self-conscious, so I'm just going to say young adult. <laughs> uh, can I just say that was a good segue, sir? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Richard. Okay. You can stay. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, Young Adult, which is another film written by Diablo Cody and directed by Jason Reitman. The Team two Juno. Team Juno, that's it. Mm. Um, which has a lot of detractors. I've, I've discovered recently, Young Adult, Young Adult's release has um, sort of brought a lot of negative opinions of Juno out of the woodwork, which I hadn't heard when the film itself came really? out. Yeah. Um, I've heard so many people that hate the movie for mm. reasons that mystify me. Mm. I might be one of them. Oh. Mm. You hated Juno. I hated Juno. So what did you think of Young Adult? I quite liked Young Adult. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think it's uh, for all the reasons that I hated Juno, is that it was Juno was so consciously, uh, was, was very self-conscious, and it was that, you know, uh, Diablo Cody trying to replicate this voice, but in Young Adult, she very, uh, she's almost mocking herself when she made Juno. It's kind of like, it's, it's, it's like her... The character in Young Adult is kind of like the maybe her headspace where she was maybe when she wrote Juno because the character actually s- sits there and listens to uh, kids speak and quickly writes it down and yeah, just yeah. apes that for her books. And I kind of got the feeling that's exactly what Diablo Cody was doing when she wrote Juno. I like that. That's yeah. a nice take on it. Yeah. I, I do agree that there are a lot of indie films that really go out of their way to you know fill their films with or fill themselves with self-consciously quirky characters mm. just because they're in that sort of what's become a genre of indie films. Uh, what I really like about Young Adult is that every character has a purpose, uh, not just narrative, but thematic purpose. And it's, from that point of view, it's like a really, really tight film. And I like that they're showing this character without a being incredibly judgmental of her for not having the typical Hollywood white picket fence lifestyle. Mm or be celebrating her for being a jerk. So, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. It's know. Swedish, right? Numi Rapace. And, yeah, that, that's, um, <coughs> yep, that's absolutely the one. Yeah, 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 yeah no, that? I dug it. thought it was great. Yeah, have you seen the David Fincher one? David they Fincher remade it. One? They remade it. Remade it? And you won't mm. believe what they changed. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, to be, to be fair, they are speaking English in this one. Yeah, yeah. And I like the way that's explained in no way whatsoever. And with accents. Accents, yeah. <laughs> Slight accents. And then when they go to London, they're still talking. If they'd never gone to London, I could have got away, they yeah. could have got away with it. Because isn't it set in Sweden? Yeah. Like yeah. In this as well? Yeah. It's just... Yeah, okay. It's, it's baffling. As is, for me, the why anyone would want to make this film. I'm, I'm not engaged. I haven't read the book. I'm not engaged by the original film. I don't find the story or the characters interesting. This film is, I think, slightly better directed than the original but I still, it, it just does not do it for me. There's another one where I didn't like the original terribly, and I know that's a bit of a travesty. I should have done a check before we, I picked up a microphone what the, the situation is with language on this podcast. Can you bleep it out? No, we can, have it all. I, can, all excellent. You have an explicit rating on iTunes. Just excellent. fucking swear. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm uh, it, it wasn't going to be bad, but so I thought I'd just check, because I thought the original movies were no more than Midsummer Murders with tits. Um, <laughs> and You I can't re- say Midsummer Murders on this podcast. <laughs> we'll have to bleep uh, that. I knew that was going to be a problem. <laughs> the problem I always had with uh, the film was with the source material, and I didn't particularly like the story. I don't think uh, Rooney Mara is anywhere on the same level as Nimi Rapace. I think that she was the one thing I thought was awesome about the original films. Mm. Then again, uh, 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 Mikhail Nickfist, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, <laughs> um, is about as charismatic, charismatic as a flattened cod. Um, and I did, I, I did enjoy Daniel Craig... <laughs> immensely compared to that. I mean, I, he was in uh, 
Mission Impossible recently, and I think he's most loved him in that too. Uninteresting. <laughs> he played one of the ma- rubber masks that they rip off, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. There's a lot of those. Um, <laughs> but but that strong opinion aside, I actually th- I actually really thought there was a lot to love about the new uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Ex- except it's, I still have the same problems I had with the original one, which I don't. Mm. I'm not that engaged with the story to start with, but um, visually amazing, and that opening sequence, yes, is. Mm. Uh, is brilliant and um, sort of harks back to his music video days, really. Yeah. So, yep. The other end of the spy movie spectrum, not that it's really a spy movie, but Daniel Craig was in it, and I said Bond before, so I'm going to go with that. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the adaptation of the both the TV series and the movie. No, not the movie, the book. The book, the book. written movie. <laughs> there was a book, yeah. <laughs> the movie in word form. <laughs> mm. I can save this, let me try. <laughs> this was uh, not what I was expecting at all. I gotta say, this film, it was, uh, I was expecting slow and deliberate, and uh, this was about ten times slower and more deliberate than I was <laughs> expecting. I'm glad you said that, because I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, the first half hour, I struggled to stay awake. Um, there were so many details and characters and code names and not saying what you mean, and uh, I was struggling to keep track. Maybe I was tired but this film is not letting me in, and frankly, I'm, I'm just finding it all a bit chilly. But then it then it isn't chilly. Mm. Then it starts, because its theme begins emerging. It's a story about fundamental betrayal. Once we start drilling to that, and to the heart of Gary Oldman's wounded character, then the film began to hook me. And by the end, I thought it was quite quite a nice job. Its level of detail and its languor, the... Um, the pacing it takes some real getting used to. Uh, look, I, I, I'll, I'll preface by saying uh, that I loved it. I think it's actually, I, I listed it as one of my favourite films last year. And two, two things I want to say about this. One was that um, uh, the, the director, Thomas Alfredson, said that he wanted the movie to look like the colour of an old man's foreskin. I believe is the... Is the <laughs> right. I, I like to imagine, and I've, I've used this gag before in other places, but I like to imagine that he had like this, this colour swatch book uh, <laughs> and he was going up and comparing it, going, yeah, not foreskinny. This wall should be a little more wrinkly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it, the thing is, not that I'm a, the world's leading expert on the colour of old men's foreskin, but um, you know, maybe one day. But mm. uh, it does. It has that sort of really washed out 70s look and he's got, he's, he's, he's got the look of that period down pat. Yeah, absolutely. The, to me, the thing I love about this film is the stillness of it. It's that Gary Oldman's performance where he does says absolutely nothing mm. for about 20 minutes and you just get so much from that. And I, I think that sort of thing, it is a very deliberately paced film. Uh, the other thing was that I was going to say that uh, when we saw this movie, somebody actually left the cinema, came back with their shopping. Um, <laughs> so that's the, kind of, that's the kind of film it is for some people, but I think if you're willing to invest time in it mm. and willing to concentrate, it's very rare that you're asked to do that in mm, a movie yeah. anymore. Uh, it's such a rewarding film. It's just a shame they couldn't get a good cast for it. Yeah, yeah I know. Just it's these a bit unknown British actors, yeah. Yes, yes. Muppets movie. The or, or no, just the, the Muppets. Because the Muppet movie is a different movie. Yeah. So now, I've not yet seen the Muppets. Um, I know. The, the gasp falls over the crowd. I am looking forward to seeing it, though. But uh, Rich is quite the Muppets aficionado. Just, just a little bit. In, in, in the movie, there is a character named Walter who is a Muppet. Um, doesn't quite realise it yet, which is one of the best gags in the film. Um, but he... I am Walter, I think, um, <laughs> because I've seen this film three times at the cinema 
a, a luxury I rarely afford uh, myself wow. these days. But I love everything about this film. I love the songs. I love the comedy. I love the the. Uh, um, I, I could gush for hours on this film. You could do a special on this film, and I can mm. talk about it for hours. I just think it's a pure joy, and I think any any criticism we were talking about this before the show, and any criticism you have of, of the film is negated by the fact that it doesn't matter. It's the Muppets, and <laughs> it's it's got. Um, Mickey Rooney in it, for God's sake! Oh, they dug me. You know, they dug Mickey Doug Rooney Mick out. He's in it for about three seconds, but it's Mickey Rooney, and you've got to give props to any movie that can can use him in it. Jason Segel's great. Everything about it's fantastic. With the real stars of the Muppets, and it reminds you of why you loved it as a kid. Mm. Thing. Um, so there. What's that thing, isn't it? I it's a film it. made by people who grew up loving the Muppets, rather mm. than people who grew up making the Muppets. I was. Uh, <laughs> I didn't like any of the trailers for the Muppets. All the ads, the, the whole campaign just made me think this is... And all the praise that was coming out of the US for it at early screenings, I just thought, no, I, I know I'm going to be a dissenting voice. I can just feel it in my bones and I don't like these trailers. And no, I'm not going to be one over. Um, so it's really nice being proved completely wrong when you see everything in context and go, wow, this is fantastic. Mm. I love this film. And you're right, because I have criticisms of the film and even as I'm thinking of them, they are kind of negated. It's like, the, for all the stakes they talk about in the film, there's really nothing at stake. You never feel like anything's at mm. stake. And it's resolved in a very perfunctory way. And you don't care because it's all about, the Muppets are all about putting on a variety show. And this feels perfectly right that it, variety shows always end, all the sketches always end. Mm with something bizarre and left field and the film sort of ends that way as well yeah. and you go yep that's perfect love it uh, I'm just gonna give a quick shout out to Weekend um, the film that everyone is going going nuts for and it's it's one of those films where I hear everyone talking about it in glowing five star terms and I'm the guy talking about it in glowing four and a half star terms <laughs> and I think compared to the rest of you I don't like it and yet it's my favourite film of the year so far wow so, people are loving it mm. that much uh, yeah people are going nuts for it and I can, I can totally see why um, it's a really simple effective love story the leads are amazing uh, it's just two guys who meet at the start of a weekend and it's you know as you can tell the weekend they have together and it manages to avoid every cliche you would think it would go for. Yeah, really, really beautiful film. So it's a, sort of the before, before sunrise, sunrise. Yeah, I was thinking. <laughs> a little before bit. Before sunset, kind of. Before model. Monday, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> before work. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, that sounds like a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> but then, of course, Clint Eastwood churns out films about one a year now. Mm. And we feel all And speaking of gay love affairs. Gay love affairs. Oh, mm. damn it. That should have been Do you want another segment. run at that? No, I feel like everyone would know even if I cut it out. The biopic I'm not sure we needed about J. Edgar Hoover. Was anyone clamouring for this film, really? Doesn't it just feel like they had some scenes left over from The Aviator and then just edited them together? And I'll just say, I was looking, I'll just say that I, I, wa I really wanted this film just to be a dissenting voice, yeah. I, didn't, I wasn't you looking forward to it or anything, I... I I, I saw it, but <laughs> you saw it. But, uh, That's but the I, most I, positive I, thing I've heard about this film so far. <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah, I saw it. Richard Gray, the real bit. That's <laughs> the thing about J. Edgar. It's like it's not the movie that's going to get people going. Yeah, let's go see J. Edgar. You know, no one's going to say that. But then you get there, and it's like, yeah, I saw J. Edgar. It was pretty good. Mm. But it wasn't great. It wasn't bad. But it was that comfortable middle. It's a movie that it's impossible to review because it's it's neither good nor bad. It's just 
It's yeah. solid. I do I, still think that acknowledging that you've seen it is overselling it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I'll give it a crack. Um, I wanted to see a movie about J. Edgar. This could have been just any repressed gay man. It completely glosses over every other aspect of his life. His mm. dubious methods, his um, extreme paranoia, his missions of destruction towards any activist or left-wing group for many, many decades. The fact that presidents were scared of him because he had something on all of them. Like, there's one scene where he hands Bobby Kennedy a vial. And, and why, why must Clint Eastwood persist with Jeffrey Donovan? He's fucking terrible. Stop casting him. He's awful in Changeling. He's awful in this. His Boston accent is just atrocious. Who did he play? He was Bobby Kennedy. Maybe oh, he's the dude from Burn Notice. He's awful. Maybe he's got something on Eastwood. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> he's got the file. <laughs> <laughs> just slides that file to Eastwood every time. You will be casting me. <laughs> um, the guy was one of the most controversial figures of the 20th century, and his sexual orientation had nothing to do with that. Mm. And the film addresses nothing but his sexual orientation and his yeah. repression. And oh, and the fact that he was a, he invented fingerprinting and he invented the FBI and he you know caught some awesome crims. It was like a checklist. of. There's a great scene in The Simpsons where you, you see Moe as a kid and he takes a prank phone call and gets angry and then turns to the camera and says, and that's the origin of that. <laughs> and I kept expecting that every five minutes in this film. <laughs> I just wanted Leo to turn the camera. And what's with the bizarre makeup? Like... The funny thing is, like, Naomi Watts' makeup is extremely good. Like, she looked like an, an older Naomi Watts, even to the pigmentation of the eyes. Then Army Hammer looks like he wandered off the set of Trash Humpers. Uh, I was going to say, um, uh, I don't know where I heard this, but it was the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark was Army Hammer. <laughs> right, after um, the post-Ark <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> one point. Yeah, he's didn't work. I thought, I thought uh, DiCaprio's looked fine. He was somewhere in the middle. Because he's never going to age anyway, so we just mm. figure mm. That's, that's what he'll probably look like if he did age. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think it was, With I a little plastic, plasticine jowls going on. Yeah. yeah, I just thought this film could have been a lot... More of an actual biopic and not so myopic. Mm. Ah, nice. nice. Now that's supposed to quote they'll never use, but should. <laughs> no, I think uh, I think it benefits from thanks to Hereafter not being the worst Clint Eastwood film of the last year, and thanks to The Iron Lady not being the worst political biopic of the mm. year. So it scrapes through thanks to those two films. <laughs> High praise indeed. Speaking of J. Edgar. Coming on the back of the Iron Lady, uh, it seems a rather disturbing trend is emerging in biopics these days of these warm and fuzzy portraits of otherwise reprehensible figures. My partner and I were coming out of J. Edgar going, so when are we getting the light and f- uh, fluffy uh, Hitler and Eva Braun love story? Um, <laughs> Springtime for Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really odd. Like The way J. Edgar just brushes over all of the all of the controversial stuff the guy did in his lifetime and the Iron Lady and and both films work in very very classic time honoured tropes to put you on the character's side I'm wondering where this is coming from and whether it's going to be something we're going to get more of or it's either a ham-fisted ham-fisted attempt to understand them or it's something deeper and darker um, this sort of revisionist history of, of sorts. Uh, what do you guys think? Well, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm all for sympathetic portrayals of these controversial figures. You know, they're all the heroes of their own story and so many people loved Margaret Thatcher at the time and still love her and I really wanted to understand why. 
and they didn't really they didn't really show me that it wasn't warm fuzzy I have a theory with Iron Lady and that it was written for the American market where they don't really understand the controversy around Margaret Thatcher back in the UK and so it's written as a it's hard for a woman in a man's world type film which is something I think they think American audiences will respond to Hmm. Um, I have no idea what the motivation behind J. Edgar was but I think I, I don't think it's the I don't think they're approaching it as in the sense that they want to do a warm and fuzzy biopic of a horrible figure. I think they're just trying to oversimplify them, mm. make them make the films accessible rather than the characters, um, which which is dangerous in itself. I mean, unless it gets people curious and then reading more and then finding out the other side of the story. But we all know there's just many people that would just take that on faith and go, oh, oh okay, he, yeah, he, he's a good guy. He was just a little bit paranoid, and but you know he couldn't be who he wanted to be, so you know, mm. poor bugger. Um, or oh, her husband died and she got dementia. Oh, poor lady. You know, she was just a woman trying to make it in a man's world. Yeah. It's, re- yeah, it's we know really the realities basic. of both situations are very different. Yeah. Yeah. Look, uh, I think you hit the nail on the head uh, with the oversimplification. I mean, that that's that's going to happen. When I mean, in the case of Hoover, you've condensing what fifty years with the bureau down to just over two hours so mm. you're going to have to it is kind of like a greatest hits of Hoover um, in a way it's but it leaves of, out all the bad hits it, it leaves out all the bad hits too and the same is true of Margaret Thatcher it's kind of like oh and there were some riots in the background as well Thatcher to me was, was a worse crime because with Iron Lady it starts off as you said with, with her um, already demented seeing uh, her dead husband and it puts you on that foot immediately puts you on the foot that uh, we have to be sympathetic to this woman and, and I, I, I didn't like the way they they went back and showed her coming up and then kind of skipped about 20 years. And they did, with Hoover, they skip pretty much all of the 50s and 60s. Mm. Mm. Um, it goes straight from um, sort of the communists, him fighting the communists to um, sort of some of the interwar years, Second World War. And then, then we don't get, we, we said they mentioned the civil rights movement mm. in there briefly, but uh, which would have been a huge time for the FBI. And then... But the 50s, 60s almost get ignored completely. So, yeah, you're right. They, they, which, and probably wouldn't have been the greatest time in the world for Hoover either. No. So, uh, yeah, I, I think I did find that a problem. But the, the, the film was... Both films are about the person, not mm. about necessarily the po- politics of it. But uh, I guess uh, it's sort of hard to untangle them in, in both of those cases. But, yeah, I, I think both, both have faults. I, I do think J. Edgar got away with it a little bit better, but I know you both disagree. <laughs> yeah, as you say, it, it's the person. And they're more concerned not with putting forward a political theory as they are with making sure the person at the centre of the story is an heroic figure. And mm. I think one of the best examples of this is the King's Speech. Mm. Now, I don't think you could really make a case for anyone any one of the main characters being monsters. But what's interesting is that Edward <laughs> VIII... looked. I tried to look. Because <laughs> he's trying to think of a third Ed- film that did it. Uh, everything I found about him was, was perfect. You know? <laughs> Damn that Apparently, King. he just helped kittens in the street. <laughs> Damn that King George VI. Uh, but Edward VIII, if you go back and look at how he's been depicted in film mm. and television since his time yeah. it's always romantic love stories can you believe he gave up the throne for yeah. the woman he loved he's depicted in the most romantic positive light then the king's speech George VI is the main character he's our hero mm. and so Edward VIII is a bit cowardly he's a bit irresponsible he's depicted that way he's almost moustache twirling a couple of times mm. a little bit he's, he's, he's quite incompetent and the thing is <laughs> at the time 
there were people who held both opinions. They thought, isn't it romantic? And other people said, how can he give up his duty? And no film is willing to really take both sides. Or it, it depends what the intent of the film is, and they will focus on the positive or the negative, depending on how it helps their story. Seeing the trailers for Jay Edgar and not like thinking it was going to be more about his life and career, and, um, I it reminded me a lot of a lot of biopics that came out in the early nineties. Like it felt like a real throwback, um, and there were films in the early nineties like Malcolm X and Hoffa, and and they were really really good at showing those both sides. That they are the heroes of their own stories, but we see that Malcolm X, you know, wanting telling people to kill the white devil, you know, it's mm. like mm. you can't let something like that just go but I feel like today a film like J. Edgar or Iron Lady yeah, yeah. would part of it could be trying to stay politically neutral mm. and as you say focus on the person but I think films used to be a lot better at still staying neutral but it's being a bit more rigorous mm. in showing us both sides and allowing the audience to make their own decision and not railroading them into sympathy and that's what these two films do mm. and it just seems a little bit... I don't know if there's anything about the world right now that's making us want to trust these people more or look well, at... One of the things I was going to say is like conservative politicians is, is in case you don't see these sorts of films being made about uh, really left-wing politicians as much, you know, and when they are, they're kind of like, you know, the two... You know, the Bill Clinton movie was Primary Colours in a way and that mm. wasn't... That wasn't. They had to kind of say it wasn't Bill Clinton, you know. Yeah, because they showed him movie. as being quite flawed. And then, all more recently, Ides of March is is about a Democrat, and it mm. he's quite flawed as well. Mm. Um, but then you go back uh, to say to like nineties Nixon, Oliver Stone's Nixon. That was a another sympathetic portrayal of a, or uh, slightly sympathetic. It did have kind of like his repression was a was a major factor to what contributed to it. It tried to give him that, though it was harder yeah. with Nixon to do it. Uh, interesting fact, uh, just completely off the topic, um, the name Richard uh, declined uh, dramatically uh, in, in the United States following uh, Richard Nixon's presidency. So um, I, was, I was lucky wow. to end up with that name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did not know that. There you go. What about Millhouse? Was that used to work? <laughs> <laughs> Went up only in animated TV series. Right. <laughs> now, Mr. Gray, please tell us, whom have you picked for your... Hellas for Hyphenates, Filmmaker of the Month. Oh, I didn't expect that little bumper there. Uh, I've picked um, <laughs> Uwe Boll. No, I've picked... Um, uh, cool, I finally get to talk about Rampage. Yeah, <laughs> I've picked uh, Sergio Leone, because I wasn't allowed to pick that other filmmaker. And you've already done Woody Allen, so... Awesome. So, yeah, Sergio and I go way back. Uh, Yeah, look, I mean, I've loved Westerns forever. I've loved gangster films forever, and he's made both of them perfectly, I think. Um, So, uh, I guess we just go through film by film. Is that the case? We We generally, yeah, we generally go chronologically. Uh, It's it's kind of hard (laughs) with him because he had a lot of uncredited film uh, we, I'm not really sure what role yeah. he had on a lot of those films. I, yeah, I like he to just stick to the credited stuff because we know he directed it from beginning to end. Yep. Mm. But that ghost-directed stuff, you never know. Like, a lot of times, it's somebody fell sick during production and we don't know what stage of production. Yeah. yeah. And then he came in and finished it. Other times, he started it and then got off the project. Mm. Um, other times, he was producing and basically jumped in to steer the ship. So, no. so his first official directed film is Colossus of Rhodes in right. 61. I should point out that he was an assistant director on little films like The Bicycle Thieves, yep. Covardis and Ben-Hur before that. So you may have heard of some of those. Never heard films. of any no. of those. They no. sound no. insignificant. Um, so yeah, look, Colossus, of, <laughs> Colossus of Rhodes is his first film. Mm. 
Chris Credit is a director. You know, most people start with something, uh, you know, maybe a little indie film, or they yeah. might you know, try, try and work their way. He starts with a giant sword and sound. <laughs> <a bit. laughs> yep. so. That's what I love. This dude has never made a film that's not an epic. Exactly. And um, <laughs> so like, oh. it's even got Rory Calhoun yeah, well. in it on his hind legs. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and it's his only film without uh, composer Ennio Morricone, which I think is right. interesting. Right. Uh, it's an interesting film. I mean, it, it, it's very much of its time. It's early 60s sword and sandal stuff, but it's actually really well made. And it's it kind of completely different to all of his other stuff because it's not a Western. Mm. Um, and there's not the deep focus that no, yeah, it's not the huge those shots aren't in there. Yeah. Yeah. But he really understands what makes that genre tick. I mean, a lot of those, mm. as much fun as sword and sandal films are, some of them are tedious, fun, but tedious. Mm. This one's really quite good. Um, yeah, I've got to say, it it takes a while getting going. Mm. Um, it's it's a little um, slow to start, but once it starts hitting its stride, it's actually a lot of fun. Like by yeah. the end, I was really enjoying it. Yeah. And the um, the set design is something to it's see. It's amazing. Yeah. It's and this, even the special effects. I mean, you've got yeah. the Colossus of Rhodes in the background the whole time, and it but looks looks like it should be there. I'm it looks pretty. Great. I'm pretty sure they built it. Yeah, yeah, they did. They built, they built a yeah. fifty foot high Colossus, and I, I, I would not be surprised. And then I think they built another half Colossus for the scenes where they're cl- crawling <laughs> out of his ear and fighting on his arm. Like, there's some startling stuff. It's in amazing. It. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, it's not his best film by any stretch of the imagination. And yeah, and like I said, I think the first half's a bit of a bore. But but once it, yeah, I, I and I like the fact that it's got such a dull kind of a. A, gr- a leading character who's a great warrior, but also kind of dull-witted and easily manipulated yeah. and really vain. And yeah. <laughs> I the Rory Calhoun character was kind of great. So, um, then, then there's a little film that he made after that, which a few people have heard of, called A Fistful of Dollars. Um, he just went ahead and invented a genre. He, he, well, yeah, that he, was did. All he did. And the thing is, it just came, invented a genre. He, he just, well, you know, well, not the Western, because they, they had been making <laughs> those for a while. The Western. The spaghetti Western. I should say, sorry, he invented a subgenre. Yeah, 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 there you go. Can you um, add a sub into all of those sure, things? Sure. Yeah. Right, I'll <laughs> sub edit it in. Yeah. Ah, yes, please nice. do. And, I mean, it, this wasn't released in, in the late 60s, until uh, about 67 in the States, but it came out mm-hmm. in 64 um, in its native Italy. And. It was a huge deal there, and then it, it made Eastwood into a star mm. um, when it finally did come out. So by the time you get to we get to the good, the bad, and the ugly, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, you know, <laughs> Eastwood was calling a lot more shots with his career by that stage. But yeah. at this point, no one really knew what it was going to do. Um, it's based loosely on uh, Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo, of course. I say loosely in in as much as. Um, Akira Kurosawa's people sued them. <laughs> successfully uh, sued. Successfully sued them. Even though Dashiell Hammond's estate didn't sue anyone? Well, for yeah, yeah. Based on Red it's Harvest. All, all Red well. Harvest, yeah. 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 So <laughs> it's, um, look, uh, to me, uh, there's a lot of, you know, people are going to debate the, the Dollars trilogy endlessly, which is the best, which is the best. To me, this is my favourite. Mm-hmm. Wow. Because um, I, I love the opening six. Everything you need to know about that character is summed up in the opening scenes when he comes in and sort of does the whole, I don't think it's nice you talking about my horse that way. Yeah. You know, that, that whole sequence is just brilliantly executed. And it could just be because I love, you know, Kurosawa as well. Yeah. Um, and it's got, you know, everything that would define his next five films, you know, or three or four films would is in there. The, you know, the, the, the um, extreme close-ups, the lengthy long shots, the extension of time, you know, take, taking... Um, uh, um, Shootouts long past they should have finished. Yeah. <laughs> uh, those sorts of things. The uh, you know the music, of course, by Ennio Morricone, which where that mm. uh, fabulous collaboration started. Mm. Um, it's all there, and it's all kind mm. of fully formed 
in that film already, and it got better as it went along. Yeah. But it's already there. I, I do feel like I'm, I'm I'm missing a bit in not seeing it in the context of the year it came out or the years it came out, because there was a lot of that close up of somebody firing a gun, close up of someone getting hit, mm. and Leone showed somebody firing getting hit in the same frame and it was really observational it really put you in the middle of the action and I feel like we're a bit more used to that now I'd love to go back to the 60s and watch it the shock of that yeah Um, yeah it's I'm much more of a fan of Yojimbo I have to say Mm. Um, something about Kurosawa's elegance and I think I think Leone's storytelling gets more elegant as it goes Mm. on like I I think once we start getting into a fist uh, for a few dollars more that the style is definitely evolving and and the stories and and got more complex as well. A few dollars more uh, introduced came out the following year, and it teams Eastwood up with uh, Lee Van Cleef um, as a pair, pair of bounty hunters um, on the trail of El Indio, who is played by uh, Gian Maria Volante. Volante. Thank you for pronouncing that for me. <laughs> Interestingly enough, Klaus Kinski is a secondary villain in that. Yeah. Um, yes. So it's nice to see him. Every time around. I watch it, I forget he's in there, and I go, "Oh my god, Klaus Kinski!" What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> and it's got that great motif in there, well, of, of, of the, the pocket watch. You know, when the music mm. stops, mm. you know, uh, begin. Yeah. Um, he's. I think the thing that really marks Leone in my mind is his almost preternatural grasp of iconography mm. is just setting up heroes and villains and imagery and <clears throat> and things like from the po- little quirks like the pocket watch mm. or the various things Coburn does in um, Ducky Sucker or like and mm. yeah, or um, Bronson with the harmonica yeah, in, um, yeah exactly in Once Upon a Time in the West like he's so good with that stuff and that's stuff cool. that I yeah, mean, it's, it's, it's cool super cool, it and it's so influential on films we watch today. He's setting up characters for action, which is what screenwriting is all about. I found really interesting. Apparently, he often shot to Morricone's music on set. Yeah, uh, wow. which was uh, and and Morricone would start writing before the movie started, so you'd get uh, so, so that's why they're, they're so integral uh, th- to those movies. It's amazing that I, I know I was only reading that this morning actually. And it's mm. just well, I think this is some of his best work. Morricone's work in for a few dollars more, mm. but I'm. I don't know, I, th- I think for a few dollars more is unfairly considered sort of the interval film or the it, the filler, and yeah. it's it's my favourite. It's actually my favourite of this trilogy, it's and it's one of my favourite of his films. It's the most rewatchable too, but I think mm. The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, which came out um, uh, the year after that, is probably more iconic because of Morricone's score. Like the, the, yeah. Um, yeah. The, but uh, there's another factor. There, there is another factor as well, but everybody knows that score from oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. It is. It was probably uh, uh, Leone's more co- most complex film, uh, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly at the time, mm. uh, because he was actually trying to, starting to make more commentary on the absurdity of war. Mm. Um, and he, he, he states that quite clearly there. I love Van Cleef was saying he was present in the film only because they forgot to kill me off in for a few times. <laughs> um, one thing I, I did mention earlier about Eastwood throughout this all, and this was the film that um, Eastwood and uh, Morica- um, Eastwood and Leone actually had a falling out ultimately open. They didn't speak to each other for years. As at this point, um, Eastwood was playing a little more hard to get. Mm. His star was rising. Um, he's, he's later, uh, Leone later made comments that said working with Eastwood was like working with a block of marble. Um, but he also said way back in Fistful of Dollars, and I'm quoting here, I like Clint Eastwood because he has two facial expressions, one with the hat and one without it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, which I love. <laughs> um, yeah, so they didn't talk to each other for a while mm. after that. Um, but I think it was just before Leone's death, uh, I think. They reconciled. Very, reconciled briefly. Very late and, 80s. And uh, in, in um, you know, films like Unforgiven, he's actually got, you know, this is for Sergio yeah. and for... Um, yeah, Don Siegel. Don, yeah. And it's, uh, so that's, I think it's just for Sergio and Don is, is the credit mm. there. So obviously he, he knew he owed a lot. Um, to that film, but so you were going to say uh, the other factor oh, that was contributing. The other factor that contributes to the wonderfulness of um, the good, the bad, and the ugly is Eli Wallach. Yes. yes. Um, to like, <coughs> I remember when I saw the restoration of the Astor, the full three-hour director's cut. You're you just can't take your eyes off Eli Wallach in that mm. film. He's amazing. He's he just like completely playing it to the hilt, but just such a wild, a genuine wild card. And not only him, but the character as written. In both performance and character, he is completely unpredictable and completely magnetic. Mm. And it's that, like, because you've had a, you know, two films are sort of strong, silent types, and then you've got, in this, you've got the, the dark and the shade of the strong, ty- silent types, and then this madman in the middle of them. Mm. And it's such a great setup as three characters to form an uneasy alliance. Mm. You see, it's weird. We're like the three bears here. Your your favourite Richard is um, of the three well, is Fistful. Of, of the three, it's my favourite. It's yeah. my favourite Leone film. Though, no, no, no. So. Your favourite <laughs> of the three is Fistful. Lee, your favourite is... Uh, few Dolls More. More. And mine is The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. Um, it's about the balances, right then. Mm. So. I think we should stand in a big circle and look at each other <laughs> until we <laughs> can decide which is the best. <laughs> and it's... And, you know, setting it around the, <clears throat> the Civil War as well sort of brings it uh, uh, another focus and... Which actually makes it a, a prequel to mm-hmm. the other two because they're set after the Civil War, right? So uh, for the for the man with the no name with no name, so that's it. That I thought was a the man with no name. name who does seem to have a name in each of the films. He does have a name, and it's interesting in the Portuguese Spanish releases. He's known as I think it's Mancho, uh, yeah, Manco, Manco sorry, um, which Th- means left-handed. Yeah, or, yeah. Uh, and, and that's in, he's always using his left hand. His, his right hand is very. Uh, yeah. Really active in that. Usually, the ponchoed. The ponchoed. That, yeah. They are actually pseudonyms, or, or, but it's still funny that he does have a name. Yeah, he's in called the Joe in Fistful of Dollars. Joe, yeah, yeah, and Blondie in the third. Yeah, <coughs> yeah. Uh, I didn't realize until reading up on on them that the next three films he considers another thematic trilogy. Leone considered that. Well, that's the thing because the original one of the original titles they were considering for Daku Saka was Once Upon a Time the Revolution. Mm. Right. Mm. That would have been good. Yeah, because that would have... Although yeah. Duck You Sucker is too much fun to say. <laughs> but 68's Once Upon a Time in the West. Now, everyone has their favourite Western. Um, this is mine, very easily. It was a movie that um, was introduced to me years before I saw it by my grandmother, who um, I have to say taught me... Uh, who, who probably introduced my love of film to me in a lot of ways. Uh, playing the seven-inch... Um, uh, vinyl of the main theme from um, Once Upon a Time in the West. And looking at the cover of that with these four men in dusters standing mm. on it, get, getting this great mental picture of what this film was going to be like. And then mm. I saw it and it was exactly like that. Wow. This is this, is this, this film uh, that, had, that had sort of been introduced to me before I'd even seen a frame of it. And I, I just love this one. When, when you look at the writing credits behind this <laughs> film, you kind of get a, a sense of why 
It's so great. I mean, it, it's it, my favorite writing credit of all time. That screen when <laughs> yeah, I know, and it comes after you think that's yeah, that's all of them. There they are, and it's it was actually written by Sergio Donati, but it's a story by Sergio Leone, Bernardo Bertolucci, and Dario Argento. Um, which also, is three completely different <laughs> styles. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Which gives you a sense of why it's, you know, sort of epic, bloody, and a Western, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. fantasy. Uh, they're all there. I mean, he, Leone didn't want to make this film, uh, which I think which, which makes it so amazing. Uh, he didn't want to do Westerns anymore. He wanted now, this to was make his American debut as well, wasn't it? It was his American debut, yeah. Mm. And he, he didn't want to make Westerns. He, he wanted to go off and make um, an adaptation of The Hoods, uh, which he eventually did uh, with Once Upon a Time in America. Um, and he was offered all these Westerns. Apparently, he was offered... Uh, a western with Charlton Heston, Kirk Douglas, and Rock Hudson, and he turned that down because yes. um, he, he he wanted to make the hoods. He wanted to get away from westerns. My favourite story about this thing is my well, obviously a lot of people have um, their favourite scenes, but uh, I have two in this film. One is obviously the opening sequence, one of the best openings of all time. Absolutely, that that's yeah. silent. You know, there's there's nothing but the the sounds of the the. Uh, uh, the windmill going round, as people, the rocking chair, the water dripping, mm. and then suddenly that's just punctuated by the train arriving. His original vision for that film was to have Clint Eastwood, Eli Wallach, and um, Lee Van Cleef mm. be the three assassins, oh, yes. and then have them dispatched in the first five <laughs> yeah, minutes, which yeah. would have been wonderful. Um, but none of them were. Uh, I think Eastwood wasn't available, so he just scrapped they the pr- idea. They probably weren't getting along. Yeah. Well, apparently, also he off- he wanted to offer the role to. Um, Eastwood that w- eventually went to Bronson mm. and he actually flew out from Italy to hand deliver the script to him I want you this much for this film you know this, wow. this, and, uh, and, he, and he just turned around he said he wasn't available you know if, if you looked up a definition of the word glutton uh, in the dictionary yeah, yeah. Um, well you'd, you'd, you'd find the definition but uh, it would describe <laughs> exactly what um, Sergio Leone was he was excessive in all things mm. um, including the amount of takes he did which I think which is why Eastwood got so frustrated with him. So it was interesting that he was... Yeah. But then he... To, <laughs> to do Hang Him High. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. A classic. A classic. <laughs> well, you know... Let's not Long forget. remembered. When was Paint Your Wagon done? Anyway. Yeah. Um, I actually uh, like Paint Your Wagon. <laughs> You're the one. Yeah, um, I am the one. He, he did... Um, but anyway, obviously, he also pitched Henry Fonda for the villain, which mm. nobody really saw at the time. Uh, and apparently, he pitched it and said, like, you know, we... We... Uh, uh, we, we Fonda turned it down. He said, we pan upwards. Um, we see, hear some gunshots. We see the legs of this man. We see his duster coat. We see him standing there. We see the gunshots fired. We see uh, children running away, screaming. We see Henry Fonda. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> it's sense. like, yeah, and he said it kind of sold him. And also, apparently, Eli Wallach had a lot to do with it. He said, mm. like, you know, you're going to have so much fun with this guy. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And so that's where that movie came out. Wow. To me, it, it's like, it's there, there's different lengths of, of this film around. Uh, I think... Most of them are around the 160-minute mark now is the one you get. It is, it's, it's amazing that, that a film that long, which is with these really long takes, can be so uh, action-packed and, so, and, and move so mm. swiftly throughout it. And, and we, we were talking before the show, Paul, about the depiction of women in this thing, and it's probably his first strong female character yeah. because she arrives to find, Claudia Cardinale arrives to find that things don't go to, to plan, um, and then suddenly she's uh, forced to run this this homestead, mm. and I just think her her arc in there is quite good. You mentioned it before the iconography of the harmonica and Charles Bronson, perfect. Mm. Everything about it is wonderful. You know, like I, I've I've seen this film countless times. Love it. Don't have nothing but good things to say about it. I've only seen it once. I need to see it again because I the f- the opening sequence is stunning, and then there's this hour where very little to nothing happens. It's true for an Ooh. hour. And then 
it, it, yes, it establishes the world mm. and it brings us to a pace, but nothing, there's, the plot is not actually driving. And then it kicks in. It is an amazing film. I mm. think I need to see it again because that, that, like, that first hour caught me completely off guard. Mm. It was like, I know where Leone's famous for taking his time and for extending sequences, but this was an hour. <laughs> and I, I was kind of I'm wondering... I'm not feeling it. I don't feel it when I watch really? it. Really? Yeah. Oh, I, it was all I was feeling. Like. And then, but, once, but once that was over, then it was fine. But I think I need to see it again now that I know mm. that that's there. And begin to look deeper into and it. And I think that's what separates it from other westerns for me, and that's why it mm. stands so far apart. Because it actually doesn't do what every other western do, which was like introduce the hero, introduce the villain, off they go. Yeah, it kind of it sta- takes its time establishing that world. So then, I guess moving swiftly along to the second part of the thematic trilogy, I guess, which is Duck You Sucker, as you said, was also known as Once Upon a Time the Revolution. Um, and often known as Fistful of Dynamite. Dynamite, which is where it's mostly available, I mm. think. Uh, the DVD copy I've got is Fistful of Dynamite. Right. Um, it's re- yeah, it was recently re-released at last under Ducky Sucker. And there seems to be a push now to finally go, no, this is the... Th- this is what... It's hard. Yeah, I, yeah. He and says it so much in the film. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, I was watching... The first time I saw it, it was called Fistful of Dynamite. I, I saw it up on the big screen. And during the film, I was thinking, I bet you anything this is meant to be called Ducky Sucker. Yeah. Uh, sure enough. <laughs> he says it all the time. <laughs> Um, this is this is one of my favourites. Yeah. I love this film so much. It is a lot of fun. It's Such a dark horse among his filmography. It is, and it's completely forgotten. Oh, not mm. completely forgotten, but it is overlooked a lot of the mm. time. People skip straight from Once Upon a Time in the West to Once Upon a Time in America. Mm. Rod Steiger and James Coburn, fabulous. Yeah, It's the best relationship, I think, in his films yeah. since For A Few Dollars More. Yeah. Like, it, I, I um, just love the two guys together. And we, uh, Paul and I were talking the other day about um, where Buddy Cop, films origin or buddy films originated <laughs> and this is i think he deserves a lot of the credit for that like yeah, Leone, yeah. he's got that going through the thing. I, what I, my favorite story about the making of this film is that he wasn't originally intending to direct it mm. one of the people yes was peter bogdanovich yeah yeah <laughs> it would have been an interesting film but apparently he left due to lack of creative control now allegedly uh, this comes from sergio leone so you can't believe it entirely <laughs> um uh, Sam Peckinpah was next in line, but Universal Artists turned him down. Yeah. Peckinpah says he never had anything to do with it. Mm. Um, most people say he never had anything now, to do with it. Now, was Bogdanovich actually on set at one point? Like, did he actually start directing it? That's the impression I get. I think it was pre-production. I think they you just think it was pre-production? during, yeah. I don't yeah. know, because everything I read about it, I get the, the impression that it started shooting with Bogdanovich and then for about a week, and then he got fired or left. Well, the other thing difference. is, too, there's another director as well, which is uh, Giancarlo Santi, who actually started filming it, mm. oh. um, and then Steiger and Coburn apparently refused to work until Leone took over. <laughs> oh, wow. So, um, you know, as you said, it's sort of unfairly overlooked. It's a very political film as well. Oh, yeah, massively mm. so. And, um, yeah, massively leftist and... Um, yeah. yeah um, Real comments on revolution and, and what, it, what it means. And there's a great speech that I think Steiger gives yeah. part of the way through. Yeah, that just... It's really, uh, I think, out of all of his films, the one it's the one that's most about something rather than just the the surface level machismo, mm. or or just yeah, or just examining an American like American iconography through a uh, European eye. Mm. Mm. Like he, it's like his films are sort of critical examinations of the Western and of the gangster film, and he's kind of taking them and like he gets the clean cut Western and he and puts it almost into the real world. Yeah, he suddenly makes it hot and sweaty and mm. dusty and dirty and gross. And there's always those great shots. One of the things that always occurs to me with, with Sergio Leone films is those shots of somebody close up 
shoveling beans into their mouth. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like... Well, there's that great sequence at the start of um, Duck You Sucker when... Uh, he's in the carriage, and they're all—all oh. all the people are kind of talking and making insults about him. And it's just these like you know, these rapid-fire set of shots of people eating and beans yes. and all sorts of things. Yeah, it's exactly right. It's and always the bad people who are. Yeah, eating. yeah, and <laughs> yeah, and his films usually work as those sort of deconstructions, and I, I think that's his usual theme. But this one here, he goes deeper and, and wears a lot of his political mm. affiliations on his sleeve. Also has the greatest, most unsympathetic introduction to a lead character I yes. think I've seen in a film <laughs> yeah. we first see him he's w- urinating on a tree then he robs a train <laughs> then he rapes a woman who's on the train um, yeah, this is uh, this is a theme we'll come to in when we talk about his ex-film as well yeah. I can't tell if his films are misogynistic or their comments on misogyny I think it's I, somewhere in between I really wanted to be the one so. to get onto that point you beat me to oh, it oh sorry <laughs> yeah women really cop it in the neck in mm. Leone films, with and not just the neck, exception. yes, yeah. yes, yeah. <laughs> with the possible exception of um, of Once Upon a Time in the West. But yeah, the the, the last cu- last couple of his films, a little bit rapey, yeah, <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Um, there, were, there were two films in between Duck You Sucker and Once Upon a Time in America, not technically his. directed but his. He co-directed them, apparently. Mm, yeah, so yeah, yeah. He's he's a credited producer, uncredited co-director. Director. And again, I get the feeling. Seeing though his productions, he kind of stepped in and went, "This isn't going the way it should." Yeah, I'm going to finish it. And so, Ducky Suck is his last credited western. Uh, but you've got "My Name Is Nobody" and "A Genius Two Partner" and "A Dupe" um, in mm. in between, and they're kind of parodies. Um, so it's just interesting. And he and he, Henry Fonda is in. And Henry Fonda's nobody. in one of them, and mm. it's kind of like they, he almost said, I think at the time, like you know, we're not. If someone's going to parody the genre, it should be us. Yeah. Um, so we invented that's where they came thing. out of. Mm. But they're kind of easily overlooked because it's not till so from nineteen seventy one all the way till nineteen eighty four uh was his next film as director. But of course the film is over four hours long. Mm. Um and it was a lifelong labour of love for him. It was um a film he always wanted to make, at least as far back as sixty eight when he was trying to apparently turn down The Godfather. Yeah. Um to because uh, he had this, this this movie in mind that he always wanted to make. Um, and it's a very different gangster film to every other gangster film as well. Um, not well, least of which because it's taking its perspective from uh, the Jewish gang to the mm, early 20th mm. century. So um, it, was, it was a film that he wanted to make for the longest time. Didn't have the rights to it apparently until the late 1970s because Harry Gray, who was the guy that wrote the book, didn't give them up easily. But he apparently was a huge fan of the westerns uh, mm. that he made. So that's kind of where that all came from. It's... Um, you say it was a lifetime labour of love to make it. Felt a little like a lifetime labour of love to, to watch. watch it. No, a really great film, mm. but yeah, God, that long cut is—it is long. It I was actually—I watched it the other day. I was actually surprised at how expediently it seemed to move. I mm. was shocked. Yeah, maybe I'm a sucker for this kind of stuff. But I was watching it, thinking, as long as this is taking, I still want to see the extra forty-five minutes that <laughs> yeah. he says is essential to telling the story. <laughs> Essential. Yeah, that's what he said. He said because it's yeah. 229 minutes, but they, the studio weren't happy with it because uh, the two, 229 minute cut showed at Cannes and it mm. got a standing ovation, and then Warner Brothers grabbed it and were convinced an audience wouldn't go for it, so they cut it from 229 minutes to 139 minutes. Now, what do you get cutting 90 minutes out of a film? And we haven't been able to see the full version until um, recently, although we. Australia used to have the full version out on VHS. Yeah, I remember when it came the out. The two-disc two cover, yes. Yeah. The two-disc, yeah, the yeah. two-tape. You remember before discs? 
<laughs> no, I, and I remember that that was how I first saw it. Yeah, was as those those two tapes, and it was it had um, the wraparound cover with um, De Niro and Woods. Exactly, out the window, and I yeah. remember it well because I just broken my collarbone playing musical chairs. Story for another day. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, look, it's it's one of those films that you can feel how much love you put into it, and it's yeah. got a really dreamlike quality to it as well. It does, and there's mm. the almost that ambiguity to the ending as well. How much of how much is an opium mm. uh, dream and how much, you know... Really uh, happened. It's really happened. And it's uh, certainly with, with some of the ambiguity around the fate of the characters as well. I do like that a director who is so well-known for making spaghetti westerns has this career that's bookended by swords and sandals at one end and American <laughs> yeah. gangster film at the it, other. Yeah. Well, he was going to do uh, The Siege on Leningrad. Yes, that's right. That right, was going right. to be his next thing. And he wanted Once Upon a Time in Russia, as it was sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He wanted to hire De Niro to play a photojournalist who's caught up That's in the middle of the Russian Revolution. Mm. and yeah, He had acquired, he had, he had assembled through various financiers, mm. this is in 1989, a $100 million budget mm. for Leningrad. Jeez. And then, yeah, he his health failed him. and Had a heart attack in, when was it? 1989? Yeah, age 60. Mm. And I don't think you can really overstate just how much his as we say, grasp on iconography mm. and his visual style has influenced generations of filmmakers. Mm. I mean, mm. you could just count... I mean, Tarantino's the obvious one, but then Rodriguez, uh, Guy Ritchie, um, I, I think other directors like Michael Mann, and, and like so many. It's just... And in some ways, it's it, such painstaking control. So funny, we were talking about Tarkovsky the other month. I almost feel like Sergio Leone is almost the Tarkovsky of action. <laughs> or Tarkovsky of genre, you know, like he's such a just even from Colossus of Rhodes, even though it's not shot anything like his other films, he still has this incredible command of the of the widescreen frame mm. and having things happen like there are court scenes where there's something going on everywhere. There's yeah. detail everywhere, and everything is so incredibly precise with his films. Um, I can't imagine they're easy to make. Um, yeah, he's, he, he's a towering figure in cinema. I, I'd, I'd like to explore the misogyny thing further. I'm not sure, as, as with you, Lee, I'm not sure whether yeah. it's just a comment on the, mm. the the harsh times of the Old West and of you know non of gangsters and the effects they had on the women at the time, or whether they were just kind of plot points. Yeah, and and it's kind of hard to get around that latter thing when there is. That extended rape sequence, yeah, which is really tough to watch. Mm. It is. Is it a tough watch? I mean, again, it's one of those things you can almost say, "Well, it's a comment." Possibly the one blind spot in a great career, but could spend hours talking about that point, though. Yeah, uh, uh, and and I think you could with, and I think as you said, it. You know, Leone's films are so influential in all aspects of filmmaking. Any any single point in his films could be discussed endlessly, and I think that's what's so so brilliant and long lasting about him: the fact that he's made. Only seven films, I think it is, we've mentioned here. Yeah. And I'm struggling to find a, a weak one in all of those. Yeah. Yeah, with the exception of, you know, Colossus of Rhodes is a good film. It's just different to everything else, and it is dated by today's standards. Yeah. Everything else um, looks as fresh as something that, that would come out in the cinemas now. Leone's been quoting as saying, quoted as saying when he was a kid, America was like a religion. Yeah. And so he mm. spent his, the rest of his years making films about his visions of America. Um, whether it be you know the old west, whether it be the gangst, uh, New York gangsters, um, prohibition and organized crime, um, or not so far away in Mexico and the, re- the Mexican Revolution. Yeah. Um, so it's 
it's interesting that it's almost his style clearly mirrors this operatic Italian influence mm. and this kind of obsession with America and with drilling down to what makes that nation tick and what he mm. saw as a great nation tick. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Fantastic being able to talk about that. Thank you very much, Richard. No worries. Pleasure. And we'll see the rest of you next month. Keep watching stuff.